Do me a favor, will you? Um, I want to do two things here. If you could turn, first of all, in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. I'll take this out if I can figure it out. There we go. Philippians chapter 1 and Romans 3, because we'll get there for a few minutes this morning. But just in thinking about uh, Dave's testimony to us this morning of God's faithfulness and the trial that he underwent. And I, I was reluctant to share this because I didn't ask him if I could, but I don't know if he remembers or not. He, I got a call one day while he was in. I had gone to visit him, and then I received a phone call just saying that he wanted me to call him. And I did that. And I don't remember if you remember this conversation on the phone, but essentially it went something to the effect of you were asking whether it was okay to give up and go to heaven. And you expressed your desire to do that because you know that heaven is far greater than here. And to be honest, when I got that call, I was, I had never encountered that to that degree before. So I really didn't know 100% how to answer. And I was sympathetic because I had seen your suffering and it was, it was bad. And I was in the room and I saw your suffering and I thought, um, I would want to go to be with the Lord too. That's what I would want it. And, and yet I prayed in the moments for wisdom and asking God to direct me. And I was thinking about Philippians one and he says, Paul here is suffering. He's in prison for the gospel. And he says in verse 19, he says, for I know that through your prayers, And the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. In other words, Paul didn't know if he was going to be killed at this point, as he was imprisoned, waiting trial um, before Caesar. And he wasn't sure which way this was going to go, but he was beginning to think that through the prayers of God's people and the Spirit of Christ that he was going to be delivered. And he says, for to me, verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Wow, even reading this, I didn't realize how much this pertains to this particular situation. So... um, But his thinking process here, Paul's is, I'd rather die because I'm tired of suffering and I know that once I depart, I'll be with Christ. That's the consistent Christian hope for most throughout history that they have believed, Christians have believed that as soon as you die, your soul goes immediately into the presence of Christ. And where is Christ now? Christ is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. So you go into heaven And that is, in Paul's words, far better. 
So on the one hand, I'm not one of these people that think that we cling to every single moment of earthly life that we can possibly cling to, or that the worst thing that could happen to a Christian is physical death. If you think that, you don't know the Bible. Because if you understand the Bible, when you physically die, you go into the presence of Christ, okay? And there's nothing here that's better than that. So we need to think about that correctly as Christians, right? We really need to understand that it's better to be with Christ. And yet what he understood is if he stays here, like if God preserved his life, this is what Paul's thinking, if God chooses to keep him here, it means fruitful labor. What does he mean by that? That he now, as Paul, would just be able to live the rest of his life in happiness and career progression and accumulating goods and enjoying everything this world has to offer. No, the way Paul thought was, if he keeps me here, it means I live for him and I bear fruit for him. And in Paul's mind, he's thinking that means for the Philippian church and other believers like them to whom I will minister all my days and serve and live for the glory of God and other people. And in that, it'll bear fruit. That's what he means when he says, for me to live is Christ. If you've ever wondered what he meant by that, for me to live means if he keeps me here, it means I live for him and through him and from him. My life now is about Christ. It's about serving Jesus Christ. As we're going through the book of Romans, of course, we will get to chapter 12. Eventually, it will happen. <laughs> but we'll get to Romans 12, and he begins it by saying, uh, I beseech you now, brothers, based on the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. Isn't it easy in our lives to be like, to just lose focus of that entirely? Like to just live for the day, live for what we want to do, live for our plans, you know, live for our careers, live for our family, live for our children, do all these other things that we have to do. And we like take our minds off this concept that no, everything uh, for me to live is Christ. Christ is my life. Therefore, everything I do, even in these daily things I have to do, I do for Christ. And so back to the, the story with Dave, Dave that just struck me that I said, you know, I understand your desire, but what are the doctors saying? Are they saying there's any any hope at all at saving your life? And you said, yes. And I said, then I think you need to just let them do what they can do to help save your life. I'm glad I said that. I am because I'm glad you're here and bringing glory to God in the midst of our assembly this morning. And I look forward to seeing you as you've expressed your desire to me, live for Christ and the glory of God in how he's gonna use you. So we'll trust God for that and we'll keep praying for that. Such a blessing. 
All right, Romans 3, and I, I, I'm not going to do probably everything I intended this morning with that, and that's just fine because the Spirit leads in the congregation of worship and other times we have things that we're worshiping God through. But I want to talk about some of these things in here because I'm enjoying them during the week, even in my own study. And um, as has happened before, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, I've come across a passage that I didn't understand really before. I've read it so many times and didn't understand really what, what Paul was trying to communicate in this passage until I've really spent some time with it. Now I'm seeing more and more from it, which is meaning these eight verses are getting more and more sermons coming from them, and that's good. I think, I really think we need to be the kind of church that isn't always, isn't always content with just staying on the surface of things and just kind of getting flybys of passages of scripture, but actually there are, then there's, there's occasion when that's okay, but sometimes it's good to just, I mean, really dive into something and give it some thought and attention and time and let the Holy Spirit work in such a way that it, it starts to bear fruit in our own hearts and minds, and then we we see more of what God is doing in his word and that makes us excited more for his word. There's nothing that's gonna cultivate your appetite for the Bible more than more time in the Bible or more meditation on it because God will show you the blessing of that. If you've ever had the, the thrill of discovery of something in the scriptures, you didn't really see before, understand. And all of a sudden, maybe you're listening to a sermon or you're studying it yourself and, and, and you're just like, oh, I see now what that is meaning. That's a thrill and that's God's awesome way of creating within us appetites to learn more and to see more so we can connect more uh, of, his, of his word. I think that sometimes our problem, especially in the day and age we live, is that we're so used to feeding our minds and souls on the things of this world, um, whether it be the entertainments of the world or the news uh, out in the world or whatever it is, we're constantly feeding on junk food, right? If you've ever tried to stay consistent in a diet plan of healthy eating, it's, it's easy if you stay consistent and you don't start dabbling into the junk food. But the more you eat the junk food, the more you lose your taste for the good stuff, and then this becomes a chore, you know, eating the good food, and you want McDonald's again, right? Um, and, and so we need to feed our minds on the word of God so that we develop the appetite for the good stuff so that we are healthy. And so it's profitable to take our time through passages like this, and that's what we'll do. So we'll go as far as we can this morning in the time allotted, and then we'll Stop it there, and we'll pick it up next week. But So remember, chapters 1 through 3, Paul's bringing everyone under sin, every single person, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. Chapter 1, nations generally. Chapter 2, the Jews. And he's got to do a lot of explaining to the Jews that they too are under the same sentence of condemnation as the nations. And just... He says in verse 28 of chapter 2, we'll begin reading there and I'll read through verse 8 of chapter 3. He says, 
For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And that conversation now opens up into these questions that Paul knows. He's anticipating the Jews' questions to what he's teaching here. And that opens us up into this. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevailed when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Let me just pause and pray for a moment here. Father, as we look at a few things now from Romans 3, I pray that you would help us see what it is that you want us to see here and that we would be rejoicing in the end in your faithfulness to your people and to your promises. And... I ask for the help to do this now. In the name of Jesus, amen. So he made that comment. Remember, we've been through a lot of this, but in verses 20 and 29, chapter 2, about the Jews, it doesn't matter if you're just descended from Abraham. Your Jewishness does not save you. It does not guarantee you a place in the coming kingdom. Okay? Your Jewishness, when it comes to salvation, is irrelevant, says Paul. Don't care if you've been circumcised. Don't care if you have the law. Don't care if you know the law. Don't even care if you're trying to obey the law. When it comes to being right with God, all of those things are absolutely irrelevant. They play no role whatsoever. And what he's going to teach in the book of Romans, and as he's begun to teach, is that Jews and Gentiles are saved the exact same way. By the grace of God, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. That's it. doesn't matter what you are. Well, that raised a whole bunch of questions when Paul would go about teaching Jewish people that raised a whole lot of objections and questions in their minds. Like the first one, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the value then of circumcision? What was this all about? Why did God even do it this way? We thought we were God's special nation, and he's given us all these promises in his word. What is all this about then? Why did he institute circumcision? Why did he give us the law if none of this is relevant to our eternal salvation? Can you see that kind of logic? It does make sense. And in verse 2, as we looked at last week, much in every way, right? In chapter 9, he'll answer more of those, but here he just says to begin with, guys, The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, the very words of God, the Bible, all of the Old Testament, beginning from Genesis to Malachi, that's what we call the Old Testament. That was the Hebrew Bible. That was their Bible. 
These were the oracles of God, and God didn't entrust them with the Canaanites. He entrusted them with his people, the Jews, beginning with Abraham and working the way down, the physical descendants of the Jews. They had this great privilege of having the word of God. They were entrusted with it. Remember, that means that God expected them to believe his words and to obey his words and to pass his words on to their children, to be faithful to his words. But if you know the history of the Jews to any extent, like if you read your Old Testament, if you've ever read through that, were the Jews, I mean predominantly or mainly speaking, were the Jews faithful with the words of God that were entrusted to them? No. There were some that were faithful throughout history, and we have record of those. You could think of different men and women throughout the history of the Old Testament that were faithful to the words and the covenant of God with his people. But the vast majority throughout the history, up until and including the time of the Apostle Paul himself, were unfaithful to the words of God, unbelieving, refusing to believe, refusing to obey, not passing them on. I mean, think how many times, even in some of the prophets, they condemn the teachers of Israel because they were refusing to really teach the law of God to the people. So it was just this entire history of unfaithfulness to them. That's why this next question comes up in the Jews' Jewish mind. We're getting a, some, of these, some of these questions that Paul brings out here to us Americans uh, in the 21st century aren't intuitive until we really dig in to see what they're saying. But remember, Paul being a Jew and ministering Jews, he knew how they thought. Believe it or not, did you know this? People in other parts of the world and in other time places think differently than we do. One of the things we can fall prey to is the idea that everybody thinks like we do. They don't, and they haven't. So what you get here is this great treasure from Paul of a window into the reasoning and the processing of the Jewish people to the gospel message. These are the types of things they would say. So if you read through them, and especially when you get down to some of the questions in verses 5 and 6 and 7 and 8, and you're like, that's kind of a weird thing to ask Trust me, to them it wasn't. This is the way they reasoned. And so Paul is letting us see that, and he's, object, uh, he's understanding their questions and objections, and so he's going to answer them in these questions. And the first one is this. Since we were entrusted with the oracles of God, right? Verse 2. What now, verse 3, what if some of the Jews, is what he means, were unfaithful to the oracles of God? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Do you understand what that question is? Okay, Paul, if we were entrusted with the oracles of God as his people, and the expectation is that we would be faithful to these words, meaning we'd believe and we'd obey and we'd pass them on, all those things... What if some among the Jews 
were unfaithful to it, what does that do with God's faithfulness in fulfilling all the promises of the Old Testament to us as Jewish people? They're not thinking of Gentiles at this point. They're still thinking about just as Jews. Because do you know this? In the Old Testament, God makes many, many promises to a particular nation of people, ethnic Jews, those that can trace their lineage back to Abraham himself. There are unique promises to those people that he didn't make to everyone else. What about those promises? What about the fact that, well, put up Genesis 17. We have a slide. Genesis 17, remember this is all in the context of God establishing covenant with Abraham right in the beginning? I will establish my covenant, says God, between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for, listen to this now, an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Can you see why there's so much turmoil over there in that little plot of land, Israel, okay, that it's being fought over, and the Jews are saying, it's our land by divine right, Through the covenant that God promised with Abraham, this is ours. And he has promised it. And even in the day in which Paul is writing, remember, all through the gospel records, that land was a mess. Yes, there were Jews there, but there were still many more just scattered about throughout the Roman Empire. The land itself was under the occupation of the Roman government. It was piecemealed out. Not even all of it could be considered Israel, so to speak. What about these promises? Is God, the question then from the Jews is this, is God going to remain faithful to his covenant promises to us or is some of our people's unfaithfulness to him nullifying all the faithfulness of God to us? And that's what Paul has to answer. Now, he only does it partway here. If you want to understand the structure of Romans, know that once we get to chapter 9, from chapters 9 through 11, is all about answering this question. Why are so many of the Jews rejecting Jesus? What is God going to do about this? How is he remaining faithful to his promises? And I mean, chapter 9 through 11, I read it again this morning, and I was like, wow, this really just speaks to the heart of all these issues. So we won't get into that, all of them here I think it's necessary to mention them to get us thinking about it. Remember, this was a letter, so as it was being read to the church, whatever morning it was or afternoon or evening, that Roman church, it was being read to them, they would get to chapter 9 much quicker than we will, right? So, so that means that we should mention a little more about it now so that we understand the whole structure of this book. Because the entire history of the... Jewish people, and this is not an anti-Semitic statement, this is a statement of fact that their entire history, really from the very beginning, from the time God delivered them out of Egypt 
in those wilderness wandering years that you can read about in the first five books of your Old Testament, all the way to this present day has been a record of them, most of them, rejecting God's words. And it culminated at what point in history? 2,000 years ago. In the appearance of Christ. In that Old Testament was promised the Christ, the Messiah. And so much is written about him there through the prophets and other places that from a human perspective, they should have recognized him when he arrived by the things he said and by the things he did. And yet when he steps into that place in that time, right when the fullness of time had come, Galatians 4, 4, God sent forth his son, okay, born of Mary. He lives as a Jew among the Jews and he's teaching and he's displaying, you know, supernatural power. And the words that come from his mouth are just wisdom so that, so that no one could challenge him or confront him. I mean, he had all the evidences in his love and mercy and yet power and righteousness that they should have seen that this was clearly the Messiah. And yet how did they respond to him? Was it with faithfulness? When, when the final word from God, the word of God incarnate steps onto the scene speaking the words of God as God in human flesh himself, they were unfaithful, they were unbelieving and they rejected him and they were responsible for turning him over to the Roman Empire to be crucified on a cross. So what does that do with all of those promises that God has made in the Old Testament? Will he be faithful? Or does their response to God nullify his faithfulness to his word? That's a good question. You might ask, though, who cares? I'm not a Jew, nor do I plan on becoming a Jew anytime soon. So why would I care whether or not God is going to fulfill his promises to the ethnic Israel? What does it matter to me? How does that help me tomorrow when I got to get up and go to work at my job to know whether or not God is going to be faithful to the Jewish people or not? If he is, great. If he's not, great. Doesn't affect me at all. Doesn't really matter. So can't we talk about something that's a lot more practical? I mean, how about, I mean, we've got problems with our kids. Can't we do seven steps to raising kids and do a series that matters? Or how about a summer at the movies? Come on, it's a big movie season. Blockbuster hits coming out. We need a, a summer in the movies, and you use the movies as an illustration to help me in a practical life. Why does this matter? Friends, because what you have to see is it matters in this way. It strikes at the very character of God. That's what this question does. Is God faithful to his word? Because if he doesn't fulfill what he said he would fulfill to those Jewish people, that means he was unfaithful to what he promised to do. 
And that should affect you because guess what? In and through the gospel of Jesus, he's made many, many promises to you that you're trusting in. You're standing on the promises of Christ our King, right? We need to know that our God is faithful to his word and that, this is important, the waffliness and faithlessness and sinfulness of his people isn't going to interfere with his consistency and faithfulness to us. Because there isn't one person in this room who has been faithful to God in every way, not even this morning, in word, thought, or deed. So we need to know that the faithlessness of man is not going to impact the faithfulness of God to his promises that he gives in Scripture, right? We need to know that for sure. That's why it's worth our time studying this out. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Verse 4 What's the answer? Everybody read it out loud. By no means. Or if you've got a King James Bible, God forbid. That's how they translate it. Communicating the fact that this could never be the case. It's beyond possibility, says Paul, that God would be unfaithful to his promises. It would go against God's very nature to be unfaithful to something he has said. He will fulfill his promises. And as a matter of fact, Paul follows it up there, doesn't he? In verse four, he says, by no means would God be unfaithful. It's not gonna nullify his faithfulness. He says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Or, let God be true, though everyone is a liar, is more of the idea. Though every human being, by nature, is unfaithful, every human being is, by nature, a liar, and cannot fully and truly be trusted for what he or she says, though that is the case, God is true. He will be true to everything he has said, though the whole world is filled with people who lie and cannot be trusted. God's very nature is one that is true, and our untruthfulness and our unfaithfulness doesn't change who God is. Isn't that good news? That God remains the same, steadfast the same, and is unaffected in his character, in his holiness, in his righteousness. He's unaffected, unchanged by the responses of human beings to him or anything else. You know, the Bible has to warn us because we're fallen sinners. It has to say, Good company or bad company corrupts good morals. In other words, and I always use this with the youth and kids, like 
if you hang around unbelievers consistently, you will, even with the best of intentions, you've got good moral intentions, those people will begin to influence you in ways you hadn't anticipated. They will lead you down the wrong path more than you'll lead them down the right path usually because you have a flesh that in the things they do and the things they say, it actually appeals to you sometimes. This is why if you keep company with TikTok all day long and you get all your company from and messages from TikTok, it will start to influence you, you see, because bad company corrupts good morals. That's just a truism of humanity because we are corruptible individuals, because we are sinners. We are changeable and corruptible, but God is not that way. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. One of his most marvelous attributes or his perfections that you could study about in the Bible is his immutability. You know what that means? It means he's unchangeable. He's completely unchangeable in who he is. He is eternally, from eternity past, all the way into eternity future, always and will ever be perfectly and gloriously everything infinitely of who he is. So if one of his other attributes is his faithfulness and his truthfulness, right? So God is faithful and God is true. That is a perfection of God that is infinitely true, always true, always has been, will never change, and it doesn't matter what you do or anybody else. It's not going to affect that perfection of God that is who he is and flows from his glorious being of absolute faithfulness. And that matters because when he says something then in his word, we can bank on it being true and bank on it coming to pass just as he said it would. He is faithful. I love what Paul says, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 He said, if we are faithless, I love this, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why would you say that, Paul? For or because he cannot deny himself. This is who he is. He can't be contrary to what he is, and he is a faithful God, perfectly so, gloriously so, infinitely so, all the time, no matter what is going on with us. He is a faithful God. So will he fulfill his promises to the Jewish people? Now, do something with me, okay? We're approaching the end of our time, but remember I had five extra minutes (laughs) as you started, and this is really cool. I love this. Find in your Bibles Ezekiel 36, just for a few minutes. Let Let me close with this, and let us leave with him promising some very important things to the Jewish people. This is, these are two of my favorite chapters in the whole Old Testament. And um, I am a person who believes that God will restore ethnic Israel in the end, that he's going to return them to the land, and that we're all going to see it 
And it's going to be for his glory that he's going to do this. I base that on this passages. At my ordination council, there was a pastor whom I respect. He didn't believe this. And so he questioned me on this issue. And I brought him here. And he didn't have an answer. And even when we talked about it later, he said, I don't know about Ezekiel 36 and 37. To which I'm thinking, well, you need to know about Ezekiel 36 and 37. <laughs> Or we can't even have this conversation. Okay, is God going to remain faithful to promise? Now listen to some of the things that he promised these people who were an absolute disaster at the time Ezekiel read this. Listen. The word, verse 16. Let's start there. Uh, Yes. When the word of the Lord came to me, that's a really important statement. Son of man. When the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land from, for the idols which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations. They were dispersed throughout the countries in accordance with their ways and their deeds. I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord. And they had to go out of this land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations which had come. Now, just pause real quick. Remember Romans 2? He actually brings this concept up that the name of God is being blasphemed even to that day among the nations because God had to scatter them out because of their unfaithfulness to him. Do you remember that? He actually quoted the name of God right now is being blasphemed among the nations because of their rejection of Christ primarily, but their whole history of rejection. Look at this, verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, he's making very clear throughout this whole passage, chapter 36 and 37, he is talking to the physical descendants of Abraham. He goes out of his way to make sure they understand that's who he's talking to. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which you have profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Pause right there. When somebody asks you, well, why would God have to restore Israel? Why would that matter if he did that or not? And the answer to that question is right here. It's for the sake of his name. Remember what I told you, Romans 3, those questions strike at the heart and faithfulness and character of God. It's because he said he would do it. That's why he must do it. And he must do it as he describes here. Otherwise, he would be unfaithful to what he's promised. I've always said, if I were a saved Jew and I were opening up Ezekiel 36, I'd say, okay, you've got to fulfill this, God. For the house of Israel, you've got to fulfill what you've promised. He says, I will, not for their sake. It's all of grace like it is for everyone. It's, to, it's for the sake of my name, verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. There's that phrase, your own land. And if you were to take time, which we can't right now, but read through verse, uh, Ezekiel 36 and 37, you will see the land, the land, the land, the land over and over again. The land that I promised to your fathers. And we read that early, didn't we? Genesis 17, this land for an eternal possession. 
You say, what does the land really have to do with anything? Aren't we being too focused on the physical and blah, blah, blah? No, we're being focused on the eternal character of God in promising them that land so that when he puts them there, he's glorified in it, you see. I will take you from these nations, verse 25. I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, new spirit I'll put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now let's just pause right there for a second. God began answering this, began now, began fulfilling this at Pentecost when the thousands of people there gathered together were Jewish people listening to Peter preach And God pours out his spirit on them and he gives them a new heart in that time. These promises now, they're beginning to be fulfilled. They're not fully fulfilled yet. There's too many other things, even now to this day, for the Jewish people aren't fulfilled yet. But I'm beginning now, you see it? You see what I'm doing? And Paul says in Romans 9, he said, he is preserving a remnant even to this day, just like he did back in the Kings when he said, I have reserved 7,000 of these people for myself who have not bowed their knee to Baal, okay? Verse 28, and you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, Genesis 17. You shall be my people and I will be your God, again, Genesis 17. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness and I will summon the grain, make it abundant, lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. By the way, if you've ever visited the land of Israel or had any opportunity to see about it or read about it in the news, you know this has not happened. I will make the... Uh, Then you will remember your evil ways, your deeds that were not good. You will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities in the land that I gave you to be inhabited and the waste places to be rebuilt And the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who pass by. And they will say, the land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. Anybody visited Israel? Anyone? Is it like the Garden of Eden right now where the cities are blossoming and there is protection among it? and among the people, and God's blessing poured upon it. No, it's a place that is in some ways scary to visit because it's in turmoil. The very mount upon which the temple stood is a mosque. This has not happened. These are promises that God will bring to pass. Then the nations, catch this, verse 36. The nations. Notice the distinction too in Ezekiel 36 between ethnic Israel and the nations, the Gentiles. When this happens, and I believe this comes to pass in the kingdom to come, when it happens, there is still distinction, though spiritual unity, there is distinction between Israel, even then, and the rest of the nations of whom God has shown mercy to, the Gentiles. 
There's still distinction because this reason, and you say, why would that be? Because God needs to be worshiped forever for his fulfillment of promises to those people. That's why he says in verse 36, then the nations that are left all around, left all around you, Israel, shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted which was desolate. I am the Lord, listen to this, I have spoken and I will do it. This is a promise of the faithfulness of God to restore those people. So they needn't worry now. Save Jews, come faith in Christ, needn't worry. Are you going to fulfill the promises, though the vast majority of my brethren among the Jewish people are rejecting you? Are you still going to be faithful, or did their unfaithfulness nullify your faithfulness in these promises? And Paul says, may it never be, by no means. Though every man is a liar, God is true. And one day you and I, if you're in Christ, you're going to be in that kingdom. You're going to see this. We're going to be standing there. We're going to be surrounding those people that God showed mercy to and preserved all those years. And they are going to be worshiping Christ with you. And I'm going to say, see, I told you so. But more than that, we're going to know that he is the Lord. And it was only him that could do this. Because we know the history of those people from all the way back to Abraham till our current time, and we know that only the Lord could have done this. He is faithful. Will God remain faithful to his promises? Yes, he will, and that's why we sing. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. At this church, we as a people, we proclaim it. We celebrate it. We love it. You are a faithful God. I pray now as we turn to the covenant faithfulness to us, even in the remembrance of the cross of Christ for us in the Lord's table, that you would fill our hearts with praise to you and that we would exclaim, great is your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.